0: You think of the USSR during the height of communism as an ideal communist state, but of course they were not, because if they were an ideal communist state, they would have collapsed and died off instantly because they would have had no economy, mm-hmm. but there's no rational planning because there's no price signal. So what they did was they, they cheated. They, they had They allowed some black markets and gray markets to thrive to a degree, and then they emulated the prices of the West- Mm. Which were free market prices generated on a competitive kind of quasi genuine free market. So the only reason the USSR and communist systems don't collapse instantly is because they're not pure communist. Because if they were, they would just everyone would die. So it's a good illustration of the general thesis that socialism is counterproductive and unjust. Um it's less productive because you can't calculate but also because it, it diminishes the natural incentives people have to be productive in a free market system where you can get the benefits of the outputs of your efforts and your labor,
1: but you can't in socialism. It's an interesting thing because there's really no alternative. It's not like this is the, I mean, I guess there is the alternative, but it doesn't, it's a, it's a suboptimal. Everything is suboptimal to private property rights in terms of aggregate wealth creation. Hey, everybody, welcome to the What is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. So if you're looking to start uh, a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based, so all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom. Again, that's Wolf, WOLFNYC, dot com. Stefan Kinsella, welcome back to the What Is Money Show. Hey Amen. glad to be back. Glad to have you here. We are going to continue our journey into Hoppe's excellent book, A Theory of Socialism and Capitalism. And just to get us rolling today, I will read an excerpt from page 50 in the PDF. Um... It's 51 in the PDF Navigator and 50 on the PDF itself. Hopper writes, Besides exemplifying the main point, the case of the two Germanys, because of its experimental like character, proves particularly helpful in illustrating the truth of the rest of the theoretically derived conclusions. Looking at comparable social positions, almost nowhere in West Germany will one find people working as little as slowly or as negligently, while the working hours higher in the East are of course regulated as their East German counterparts. Not to be sure because of any alleged differences in mentality or work ethics, as those are very much the same historically, but because the incentive to work is considerably reduced by a policy scheme that effectively closes all or most outlets for private investment. So, just jumping back in where we left off, I think Hoppe is, you know, clearly we can't run any experiments in the sphere of praxeology or human action because there are no constants. But I think what he's arguing here is that we had as close to an experimental environment as we could possibly have, maybe not possibly have, but uh, one of the best we've had historically, which was the actual split of Germany into East and West parts. And um, and he's highlighting here that the way I see this is that you know incentives seem to be the thing that governs a lot of human action, especially in the realm of, of productivity and, and economics. And when we eliminate these outlets or opportunities for private investment, we've, we're basically eliminating the incentive to be productive. So he's saying that, look, here's a country that's same language, same culture, split right down the middle due to this idiosyncrasy of, of historical conflict. And what do we see? We see people being very productive in the capitalistic incentive structure and non-productive in the socialistic incentive structure. Um, where would you start here? I mean, I'm looking at it through the lens of incentives still. It seems like, I think the author is as well, but I'm just curious to hear your thoughts about what he's trying to convey in this passage.
0: Right. And well, and I think another example would be North and South Korea, right? Which um, Michael Malice has written about and others. Mm-hmm. Um, another country that was split apart by basically communist and free enterprise systems. I mean, if you think about it, this chapter is part of his series exploring how socialism is implemented institutionally in a practical way in different Um, countries historically in Mm -hmm. in, in recent history. Um, And remember, so socialism to him is um, the institutionalized interference with or aggression against private property rights, Mm -hmm. and capitalism is the institutionalized respect for or protection of private property rights. And so he's exploring different flavors or varieties of this. And so I guess what he's saying is that you can you can use um reasoning to deduce that these systems have to be less productive because of the way they're organized like they're socialist so there's not price signals um hmm. and there's also not the right the same incentives so he's giving but, but the the austrians believe that you can prove things sort of deductively but you can illustrate them with historical examples So I think he's just trying to illustrate it because it helps you to understand how these principles apply in practice, right? Um, And I think Hans Hoppe and and Rothbard and others pointed out elsewhere, you know, like you think of the USSR during the height of communism as an ideal communist state. But, of course, they were not because if they were an ideal communist state, they would have collapsed and died off instantly because they would have had no economy. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. there's no rational planning because there's no price signal. So what they did was they they cheated. They they had they allowed some black markets and gray markets to thrive to a degree, and then they emulated the prices of the West, mm. which were free market prices generated on a competitive, kind of quasi genuine free market. So the only reason the USSR and communist systems don't collapse instantly is because they're not pure communist because if they were, they would just everyone would die. Um, and so I think what he's saying is, yeah, it's always a mixture, but to the extent that you actually try to implement these these policies where people can't own their private property and therefore there's no there's no genuine free market in the in the prices of capital goods, then you don't know what you're doing. And this does lead to in the end, um uh, bad incentives too and so Mm. i guess he points out so it's a good illustration of the general thesis that socialism is counterproductive and unjust Um, it's less productive because you can't calculate but also because it it diminishes the natural incentives people have to be productive in a free market system where you can get the benefits of the outputs of your efforts and your labor but you can't in socialism
1: yeah it's well said i um another framing i've been kind of toying with in my mind about this is if we just look at the number if we look at the ratio of human hours spent productively as a as a proportion of the total human hours spent right in existence total human hours in a society let's say and it seems like this idea of uh enabling strong private property is really just incentivize, it's giving people the uh, impetus to spend more hours productively rather than spending hours stealing from someone or spending hours non-productively, for instance, because people actually keep the fruits of their labor. And so that seems to be like the, one of the aims of economics is really just to increase that ratio, right? We want more humans being productive more often and that actually increases the aggregate wealth creation for everyone and you can only you can only intrinsically motivate i don't know i guess it's an extrinsic motivation technically if people keep what they earn um you can only implement a policy that motivates people i guess it's still like extrin- extrinsic if they're actually keeping their you know the fruits of their effort basically so I don't even think there's another conceivable way to do that, right? The only other way is is coercion, right? It's at the tip of a gun or under some threat. I mean, look at the pyramids. The pyramids were built. Obviously, there was slave
0: labor involved, and there's a way to use other people to get some results. I mean, mm-hmm. it's probably horrendously inefficient, but if you're a tyrant, you don't really care. You're just workers mm-hmm. are dying, slaves are miserable. And you're just throwing you're throwing things at it. Um, right. I mean, I—I I mean, one way to look at it is, economists, especially Austrian economists, recognize um, a couple of things. They—they they recognize the, the the fact of time, and thus of time preference, which means that when we act, we're always acting at aiming at some change in the future, uh, because we, we we're 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 uneasy or dissatisfied with the prospect of. What's going to occur in the near future or the far future if we don't intervene? So we we intervene or we act to change the future. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, so we have our goal on the current. So whenever you consume, like you consume the efforts of your past productive efforts, and you you know you you caught a fish yesterday, now you eat it today. Uh, you're consuming. You're consu- you you can only consume in the present. So you have a, a certain value attached to the present. But you value the future too, but the future is less valuable because it's not here yet, right? That's uh, why less certain, right? It's less certain and it's not here yet. And so, what economists recognize is that this phenomenon of people recognizing the flow of time and the fact that we live in the now and the future is coming um, leads to the uh, it, it, it leads to this insight that um, we can produce on a hand to mouth basis like. You catch a fish, you eat it, whatever. Mm -hmm. Or you have a time structure in your production. You can like save some of your your productive efforts now, and that allows you to have more time to invest in, you know, making a fishing net or some other things that are more capital goods. Basically, Mm -hmm. Uh, basically, in other words, it it allows you to have a long term structure of production. So uh, I can't really grow tomatoes and corn and potatoes and chickens and cows, uh, because that takes, you know, months or years to have the mm. crops grow from now to then. Um, unless I have secure property rights and I know that uh, my effort now will pay off in the future, there's just no rational reason for me to engage in the effort now for for future productivity. Mm. Um so the point is that um and this leads to the incentive issues. So so you don't design these systems to give incentives, but the incentives arise naturally, right? Like if I know that I can have a reasonable assurance that if I plant a crop of say Christmas trees now, that take you know several years to grow, um, I can get a profit in the future. I have to discount it by the interest rate and all this kind of stuff. But if I'm sure that I will be able to maintain control of my property and sell these trees in five, 10 years, then I might engage in planting the trees now. Mm. Um, I wouldn't do it otherwise because it, it, it's not that it's an incentive. It's just it's irrational to waste effort that someone's going to steal right away, right? So all these libertarians you talk about, uh, oh, we need to have a uh, uh, prepare for the for the apocalypse is coming. We need to have a, a, a chickens and a vegetable garden. Well, I mean, that's fine, but if we really have an apocalypse. You're going to have roving bands of hungry people scouring the earth. They're not going to respect property rights. And you're going to wake up one morning and your chickens and your tomatoes will be gone. So why would you bother planting them if someone's going to steal them? So mm-hmm. I guess that's the, the rationale behind the the idea of incentives. Yeah, that
1: makes <clears throat> makes a lot of sense. And I guess the perhaps the extent... So these long-term production structures... They're going to be more fragile the higher the risk of coercion is, right? That, you know, if there's a breakdown at any stage, then you can actually collapse trust across the whole thing. But the degree to which people are free and consensually contracting and um, adopting mutually applicable rules with one another, such as private property, that's what makes those long term production structures. Robust, or maybe even anti-fragile, um, and so yeah, there's there's like it's an interesting thing because there's really no alternative. It's not like this is the. I mean, I guess there is the alternative, but it doesn't. It's an it's a suboptimal. Everything is suboptimal to private property rights in terms of aggregate wealth creation. Um, and you mentioned the pyramids. I just wanted to throw this out. Uh, this was something I read, and I think I read this from. Will Durant in Heroes of History, he said, according to Herodotus, the pyramid itself, he's talking about one great pyramid in Egypt, required the labor of 100,000 men through 20 years. And so if you, if you penciled that out at 5,000 labor hours per slave for a year, it's like 10 billion hours of human time. Just a staggering number. And to your point, they're just like you're just throwing labor at the thing, right? Because humans are expendable in that situation. But in in doing that, it's you're you're as suboptimal as you can be from a labor efficiency standpoint. Um. So yeah, it, it's just interesting. I,
0: mean, I think the way to look at it. So, and Mises, I think, calls uh, this long-term production. He calls it roundabout. So, mm-hmm. the roundabout production process means that you know you don't get immediate gratification or immediate production. It takes a while. And of yeah, so you're right that you're only going to engage in that if it's rational to do so, if you actually can reap the rewards of your efforts. Mm -hmm. Now, you do that on small scales by self by sort of self-protection. Like you can have a little farm, you can have a fence around it, you can have locks on your doors, you can have a couple of sons with rifles that can keep marauders off, but that sort of protection of your property rights is limited and you could only invest so much because uh, the protection of property rights is fairly limited. Mm-hmm. So you can year or six months or whatever time horizon. But if you have the institutionalized protection of property rights spread across this, the whole society, like with a legal system, mm-hmm. and you can count on that to a certain degree, that is when you can start engaging in higher and higher levels of roundabout production or mm-hmm. long-term that leads to greater productivity because the longer the production process,
1: the greater the productivity. Right. Yeah. So it makes a lot of sense. It's, um, we're very dependent on the, this mutual agreement, right? This, this normative structure, I guess, right? That we actually expect other people to behave as if we exclusively own the things we create and we reciprocate. And to the extent that agreement is enacted and protected, well, we get a real gain in productivity, but to the extent that it's violated or defected from, that normative structure is is defected from, we get a collapse in wealth and social cohesion too.
0: And I think there is a sort of Darwinian or or natural selection aspect to this because I think that for whatever reason, when you have certain parts of the world or certain societies or or groups that they just don't have this uh, these institutional protections for whatever reason, right? It might be random, but mm-hmm. the point: the ones that happen to have it tend to prosper more, and they tend to spread. So mm-hmm. there's sort of a natural selection aspect to this. Um, you know, I've also in my legal life, outside of my libertarian uh, writings, written on international law and something called political risk, which is kind of related to what you're talking about because. Um. Uh, so, so trade, trade, and foreign investment is part of this process of production. So, if we trade, we, we everyone that trades is better off. So, international trade is a good thing, right? This is what um, uh, the economists have explored for for centuries at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, international free trade is a good thing because people can all benefit by trading and the division of specialization of labor. Um, but when you invest in another country, especially some of these developing regimes um, and the third world countries and the former communist countries, et cetera, then one concern is what we call political risk. Now, yes, we libertarians are heavily critical of the, U- the U.S. and Europe because of the socialist aspects, like um, your property rights are not completely secure because every year you're, you have property taxes and income taxes mm-hmm. and regulations and the government could seize your property. But by and large, the institutional respect for property rights and free markets and capitalism is pretty high in the West, which is, I think, the reason for their success. Mm-hmm. In the emerging economies in the developing world, um, it's not the same thing, especially like in in, in um in, in 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 the middle east in the 70s when mm-hmm. they were expropriating western companies so the point is if you want to have a, uh, you know Exxon wants to have a big investment in oil and gas or some other infrastructure project in Saudi Arabia uh or some other country in the middle east um or Cuba let's say Cuba communist country um then if the country if the government just seizes it and, and nationalizes it then they're going to lose their investment. So the question that factors into the decision to invest in the first place. So the level of political risk is similar to what we're talking about like the level of institutional protection for 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 property rights in a given re- legal regime or a given country or a given jurisdiction on the international stage because international trade is important. It's important to have ways to reduce the political risk that the government will expropriate your investment in their country. Say China or Russia or Azerbaijan or or the Middle East, something like that. Um, and there are ways you can do that using international law and legal agreements and concession agreements and treaties and political risk insurance, which is a bit of uh, a far field. But I find it fascinating because it's a practical way that lawyers and the international legal system can help Western private companies Somewhat reduce the political risk and therefore encourage investment in these
1: foreign countries and increase productivity. Ultimately, mm. yeah, that's really interesting. So you can channel some of that um, tendency to to aggress against private property into a legal system that lets you resolve it non-violently or non-less coercively, perhaps something like that. International arbitration treaties. Yeah. Uh, like yeah. in. Risk
0: insurance, um, uh, bilateral investment treaties between countries. I mean, I know a lot of libertarians are skeptical of this multinational, WTO, UN, NATO kind of thing, but there are. We have to have our eyes open, and there are good things about it because mm. the good, like you know, uh, you know, in the old days, I used to criticize. Um, what was the treaty with Mexico before Trump uh, got rid of it um, uh, under Bill Clinton when we had the free trade? The North America Free Trade Agreement? NAFTA, right? Yeah, NAFTA. Yeah, yeah. I'm rid of that, it. with some other acronym. But, um, you know, you could criticize the WTO and NAFTA, these things, for being managed trade. It's just for mm-hmm. right? But they did basically incrementally move in a overall in the direction of more free trade which i think mm-hmm. is a good, like, so we have to like like i've never been in i've never been a libertarian that opposes incremental improvements in favor of liberty um i've just opposed uh as long as they're unambiguous in other words like the voucher system is a good thing i'm gonna have a debate on this at so forum so everyone's like oh well wouldn't wouldn't moving to school choice or a voucher system be a step in the direction of liberty yeah, it's not perfect, but it's a step in the direction. Like my my concern is, it's not a step in the direction because it would give the government more control over private schools. It would expand educational welfare. So, like there there's negatives along with the 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 positives, right? The positives of more efficiency of the public school system. Okay, that is a positive, I guess. Uh, although I'm not sure if it's a positive thing to have the government more efficient at brainwashing our kids with you know state. like it's it's not that clear yeah,
1: yeah. but
0: but I do, I do think that the, the international treaties like WTO and NAFTA and the the, the gad yeah G-A-E, I think overall they're good things although they do entrench the idea of um state managed trade mm. and the, if trade is a bad thing in a way and the only way the only reason you would allow someone to trade with you is that they give you something in return. Mm. Like there's false ideas behind the motivations of the people doing it, but overall, the thrust of free trade has increased in the last thirty, forty years in the on the world stage. Right, like the UN and GATT and NAFTA and the US
1: and the WTO and these things. Yeah, so there's a trade off occurring, perhaps that these organizational bodies that you mentioned they're bringing more unification to the world so they let us have more global division of labor or more global trade more global division of labor however they're also used by the u.s to kind of to benefit the u.s interest at the expense of other countries so it's not black or white clearly Um, but we do need that right we need and and presumably that's kind of where a Bitcoin may offer some promise in the future. It's just like this neutral international settlement layer that it's not obviously going to do the same things legal wise that some of these bodies can do, but, um, you could at least get the, the money aspect sort of on, on neutral territory or a level playing field between nations.
0: I, I agree with that. I think that the, the, uh, the U S dominant domination of the, of the whole, uh, Sphere is partly because of the dollar hegemony and mm-hmm. uh, and uh and so yeah, so then they can use this western american dominated alliance to to punish rogue or our enemies, right Russia whatever um but if Bitcoin became more of a world reserve currency, then that would re- remove that power so the u s mm. U.S. influence would, would would be reduced massively, which I think is a good thing, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mean that international law itself and these institutions wouldn't have a good role. In fact, I think in an ideal free, if, if we were to move, so I mean, in my mind, the ideal free world would be an anarchist, you know, libertarian world. And a step above that or below that would be a world of 100,000 Lichtensteins, like 100,000... 000- mm city-states of, you know, 50,000 people, whatever, mm-hmm. 100,000 people, whatever. Um, that would be even better. And then, of course, in that world, no country would be dominant and self-sufficient, so everyone would be forced to trade, and it would be fine. It would be a good world, mm-hmm. right? International law and treaty, the, the importance of treaty obligations and comity and respecting each other's borders would be of paramount importance, which is a good thing, I think. Uh, which is one reason why, unlike a lot of my libertarian friends, um, I am completely opposed, to, like Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, for libertarian reasons, for legal reasons, for whatever. I mean, uh, you know, Russia's invasion is a clear violation of the international law provisions in the UN Charter that they agreed to in 1945, not to invade another country. Unless you're subject to armed attack, that's it. Mm. And bullshit. So, so Russia's invasion of Ukraine is clearly um, illegal under international law. Um, and you. So then you have libertarians say, "What about? What about? What about you NATO? Know, what about? Like, what about us?" And it's like, well, that, I, that's not the point. Just because you declare Russia's invasion to be illegal and illiberal and unjust under libertarian principles, because they're you know, they're conscripting their citizens, they're taxing their citizens, they're murdering innocent civilians in Ukraine. Um, None of this means that you justify what Ukraine's doing. I mean, they're another evil state too, right? Mm -hmm. Um, They're corrupt and they're horrible, but you know, at least international law says you should not invade another country unless you're under armed attack and Russia's violating that. I think that's a useful principle that libertarians should favor. Because we want to find any excuse we can to limit state aggression and state power, state violation of, of the rights of the individual.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like the non-aggression principle at the state level, right? That yeah. no state has a right to aggress against another state unless it's in response to some prior aggression, something like that. Well, um, responsible on SAG, actually. So, I mean, so In yeah. Russia, this in
0: 1945, Are there, and they're on the Security Council. They're one of the founding members of the UN. They, you know, they have a paramount obligation to take their own obligations seriously, and they should not be invading Ukraine.
1: Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. It looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection. No GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, Like I said, it's got a high res three inch touch screen. It's got a camera for air gapping the wallet. Uh, It's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock.
0: Insurance, you got to have some insurance. You got to, There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. And I give a company some money in case shit happens.
1: Now if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? (laughs) So with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use, all of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay Server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a coin join. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make coin joins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Let's try to take this back to Hoppe's piece. Um again he's using germany like east and west germany as like this uh, experiment or or observation on, on which to kind of justify his theoretical points and so he's he's continuing here uh, i'm on page 51 now on the pdf and he writes experience also corroborates what has been said about the other side of the coin the overutilization of publicly owned means of production In West Germany, such public schools, such public goods also exist, and as would be expected, they are in relatively bad shape. But in East Germany, and no differently, or in fact even worse, in the other Soviet-dominated countries, where all factors of production are socially owned, insufficiently maintained, deteriorating, unrepaired, rusting, even simply vandalized production factors, machinery, and buildings are truly rampant. Further, the ecology of crisis is much more dramatic in the East in spite of the relatively underdeveloped state of the general economy than in the West. And all of this is not, as the case of Germany proves clearly enough, because there are differences in people's natural inclination to care and to be careful. So, uh, another theoretical assertion he made earlier was that... um, Publicly owned means of production would be overutilized and uh, everything you said here, right? Insufficiently maintained, deteriorating, unrepaired, rusting, vandalized, etc. Uh, that tends to happen more to publicly owned means of production versus privately owned means of production because, and with private ownership, the private owner has an incentive to maintain the asset, right? He has a long-term capital interest in the asset. Whereas in public ownership, it's much less clear, right? Like one individual can reap the rewards and then dump the costs on another group of individuals. Um, what Do you have any thoughts about that particular passage?
0: No, I think he's, again, he's illustrating. Um, so he's saying that um, the last sentence, uh, it's not because there are differences in people's natural inclination to be careful mm-hmm. because the West Germans and the East Germans are basically the same kind of population. So mm-hmm. there's a difference in what's going on. It's not because of the people it's because of the institutions. So, mm-hmm. a, so pointing out that it's a good illustration of this, you know, Hans argues in another place, uh, he wrote a letter to the, uh, the conservative Mac, conservative magazine chronicles. And I think he put it in one of his, his articles. He arg- he argues that, um, uh, by the same type of reasoning, why you would see different outcomes for slavery under a private slavery system, like happened in the antebellum U.S., mm-hmm. where you had slave owners with basically a productive enterprise, like um, you know um, a plantation making mm-hmm. you know corn or cotton or whatever they did, um, and they, the slaves were used to help produce that output. But they were privately owned under the legal system, which, of course, we disagree with as libertarians. But that's the way the law treated them as compared to the situation of citizens of, say, a communist nation like Soviet Union or or East Germany during the interwar period where the citizens are effectively slaves because they're not allowed to leave. The government tells them what jobs they have to do. The government controls their own lives. So they're basically slaves, but they're mm. public slaves. Like, they're just public slaves. Mm. So because of that, the incentive structure is different. And if you read Hoppe's little letter to Chronicles, I mean, you can interpret that as being pro-slavery. Pro, It's not pro-shadow slavery. It's just analyzing, like, if you're going to have slaves, which one, how do they work differently? And mm. which, which slaves would be treated worse and better? Uh, mm-hmm. if, if you have the Soviet Union, the, the people are just basically expendable expendable resources. Mm-hmm. As you, you're not using them efficiently. They're just there. Um, I mean, how many people were killed during the famines in the Ukraine? Right. 40 million people. They just throw mm-hmm. people away. Whereas a private slave owner, as cruel and as unjust as that is, they do have an incentive to keep their slaves alive and happy enough to keep working and things like that. So you can even see how you could say, well, I'd rather be a slave in any of America than in, Sovi- than in Soviet Russia, where I can't even escape and um, own anything myself. So that's, that's a quite interesting um, side comment by Hoppe. Yeah,
1: that's a very interesting take. And it's funny, we don't even refer to people from the Soviet Union as slaves, but that's a great point that they were just under this socialist regime where they had no autonomy really right their jobs were assigned
0: well not only that let's talk about the u.s so in the so we think slavery has been abolished but um and let's forget about the uh the illegal immigrants coming over and uh, they're allegedly enslaving children child labor in the u.s the 13th amendment to the constitution says you know um slavery is abolished but they make an exception for uh going to prison for for violating a law, a cr- for, 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 for committing a crime, which means that they, they sort of recognize that w- when the government takes an innocent person or a guilty person, either one, um, and they put them in prison for violating a law, they're effectively enslaving them. So they, they, they couldn't abolish slavery outright because that would mean prison would be illegal. So they had to right. say, well, violate a law and you're put in prison and and by the way, they, there's prison labor. Like you know, we, we criticize China for the prison labor of of the Muslim Uyghurs or whatever they call them. What about in America? would you? Have prisoners mm-hmm. in prison labor getting fifteen cents a dollar, and the prison or some other companies making the rest of the profit for I don't know, making license plates or having call centers, whatever the hell they do. But the point is, you have at, well, that's what chain gangs were, right? Right. Chain like prison labor. This is this is slavery. But we say, well, it's an exception to slavery because they're 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 imprisoned for violating a law. Yeah, yeah but the orbit the government can make anything illegal that they want. So they right. they can. It, it, I mean, fine. I agree that if someone commits murder or rape or or robbery, you can enslave them as part of their punishment. They deserve it. Okay, that should be an exception to the general prohibition to slavery. But if you say that for violating a law. And the government has the power to grant pass whatever law they want, then slavery can come in from the back door. So right, right now you have people going to prison and being enslaved for uh, possessing marijuana or selling marijuana or cocaine or some other drug mm-hmm. or for not paying their taxes mm-hmm. or, for, or for refusing to be conscripted in a war mm-hmm. um, when there's a draft right. uh, or whatever. Uh, so the government can basically enslave anyone as long as they say oh you violated a law right so I mean we're not so much better than uh Russia enslaving the Uyghurs or, or whatever they're doing or no, sorry China and 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 uh, and, uh, and uh, because we have a huge prison population which are basically I mean I don't know the numbers I'd say at least half of them are people that are or at least a big percentage of them. Or innocent people who've done nothing wrong in the libertarian sense.
1: Yeah. So this is an interesting topic too. So one of the ways I've thought about this and and tried to describe it, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, is that if you're someone that has a definition of a slave is someone that has a 100% effective tax rate, all right, So all the fruits of their labor go to a taxing authority, whether that's a government or a prison or whatever it may be. And so, you know, I when people say slavery has been abolished, I'm like, well, you just tell me what your tax rate is. Tell me what your effective tax rate is, and I'll tell you what percentage of a slave you are, because th- that is the percentage of the fruits of your labor that you don't keep, you don't control. All right. There's this fundamental injustice of you not keeping that percentage of what you rightfully earned and you know a lot of this kind of hangs up on the definition of taxation as theft but you know if if you can't say no to it and you can't take your business elsewhere then i you know i don't know how you could say that's anything other than theft and so the points you brought up of like people refusing to pay their taxes or refusing conscription into the military that seems very insidious because you're basically refusing to be enslaved, right? You're saying I I reject this this slavery you're trying to foist upon me and then what happens? Well, you're thrown in jail, right? You're you're put into a real slave situation. Yeah, so, it, yeah, it's like we're not like we we think we're in this super civilized world and sure we've made a lot of progress, but no, there's still these there are these weird elements of um coercion for coercion's sake in a way right just to, to justify the state's um dominion i guess in the world and so like what are we what are we to do about that because obviously it's ethically wrong i would i would assert that it's morally wrong in most people's moral world world views yet it's normalized and it's not well understood you know people think oh yeah of course if you don't pay your taxes you go to jail if they don't think about it through the slavery lens, what, I mean, is this just the way the world needs to work or should work? Or is there something we can, is there a better way to do it?
0: Well, I think one thing we can do is we can, those of us who actually see through the, you know, we, we actually understand the reality of what's going on. We can refuse to to, to lie, like mm-hmm. go ahead and call them by what they are. I mean, Habba has something like he thinks we should, you know, stop taking the state so seriously and mock it. Don't give it respect. Like, you know, if, you know, when you have these libertarian groups, they have like a congressman, I don't know, Justin Amash, and they, 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 oh, the honorable Justin Amash. It's like, why are you giving people, you know, why are you kissing the ass of official state designations of people that are basically part of this criminal organization? Mm. Um, so stop. So, have comedians make fun of them. Don't take them seriously, mm-hmm. also call them call them out. Um, um, th- that's I think that's part of the first step, right? But um, I, I I just think the other thing is truth in advertising, right? Don't let mm-hmm. Don't let them saying saying this just. It's like you know, um, uh, you know. I, I've I've you know I'm sure you've done this. I've done this, and you know gatherings of normal ish people and they seem to be kind of intuitively with us on a couple of things they're kind of like good liberals or good good light Republicans or whatever and they'll say something but you know they always fall back to the well but he did violate a law
1: <laughs> they
0: don't understand. they can't conceive of law as not coming from the state right right uh, and so they're sort of caught up they're, they're they're tricked up by it um so I you know I just you know, I, I mean, that's one good thing about being a libertarian is you can all, if you're talking to Democrats, you can always out-civil liberties them. Right. Talking to Republicans, you can always outdo them too, because we're more consistent on our understanding of the nature of the government
1: and free markets and civil yeah. liberties deal. I think there might be, because. That well, he did break a law. Like it's, it's almost like the moral or ethical justification for whatever the res, the retaliation was. But I think there's kind of a misunderstanding there. Because, and I would point to the piece you wrote actually, right, on the differences between discovered laws or legal discovery versus legislation by fiat. That there are certain laws that kind of are discovered over time as like the standard resolution to a set or a type of problem that ossify into law over time. So it's much more like a, a naturally emergent bottom-up process right. versus legislation by fiat, which is just some guy or girl in an office of authority writing a law. Then like, you know, yesterday it, it wasn't a law, today it is a law. And that's much more this arbitrary, what you said earlier, like the, the government can backdoor you can backdoor slavery that way, right? Because you can make anything illegal, right? You like you said about marijuana, you made a plant illegal. So possession of a plant now is grounds for enslaving a person. Um so when yeah, people it, say it, I mean, that if
0: you wanted to enslave black people, I mean again, all you would have to do is just pass a law that is disproportionately affects blacks. I don't know, you know. Yeah. Black people and white people have different habits and tendencies you could find something that like you pass a law that if you do this right then like 90 percent of the people who violate it would be black uh there's been
1: arguments that the the disproportionate nature of the the laws enforcing a force enforced against people who possessed cocaine versus people who possessed crack cocaine right crack cocaine was something much more heavily used by black communities and it carried you know much larger fines penalties jail sentences than cocaine and so that might be exactly what you're describing there is that, yeah, that yeah, situation yeah, that's, a,
0: that's a perfect example the laws happen happen to have a disproportionate racial effect right hey okay? but there's a reason it has a, that effect right it's because we we've, we've turned the black communities into into what they are because of uh, welfare policies and legacy of slavery and mm-hmm discrimination law and all this kind of stuff. And so yeah, so it just happens to be that way. I mean, um, you know, everyone is familiar with so everyone in America is now familiar with the um what's the warning that they give but when they arrest you the uh, the Miranda oh, Miranda rights, yeah. But they're 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 aware of this 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 mantra this mantra that um um ignorance of the law is no excuse. Mm. Okay? Now, on its face, that seems unjust because why should you be punished for something? If you did something that was illegal and you didn't know it was illegal, why should you be punished? Mm. Well, the reason that the original ancient private law said that ignorance of the law is no excuse is because the assumption was that the law was the organic law that that evolved according to... Over the centuries and custom and our intuitions, mm. and so the the flip the flip of the formulation is that you know the natural law is engraved on your heart. Mm. In other words, you you freaking know that you shouldn't commit murder. Right. Don't tell me, don't tell me that you didn't know you shouldn't commit murder. Everyone knows this. Like mm-hmm. it's part of our culture. It's part of our customs. It's engraved on your heart. It's part of our nature. Mm. Whatever and. When you look at law that way, then the idea that ignorance of the law is no excuse makes sense because you're saying, like, you're not going to get out of this. You can't rape a girl and say that, oh, I didn't know I shouldn't rape her. Mm -hmm. You can say you knew, you you knew. Mm -hmm. But, But when law becomes not organic, natural, intuitive, customary, developed law, but it becomes just the decrees of a legislature. And those decrees take up thirty feet of shelf space in a law library of arcane statutes that only lawyers can read and even they can't read all of them. Um and so so you actually don't know what the this law the law is a fake law and mm. you don't know what it is, then it becomes perverse to say that ignorance of the law is no excuse. Actually ignorance of the law should be an excuse if the law is fake and arbitrary and made up and no one knows what the what the hell it is,
1: right? Right. That's a great point. That's a a very slippery slope, right? Once you allow someone to just produce or generate new laws by fiat, everyone that comes into a position of power will just produce the laws that benefit them. And much rarely are they repealed, I assume, right? These are people just producing new laws for whatever private interest they may have. And so you, over time, you get all these different people that have been in positions of power and it leaves like a wake behind them of all these accumulated fiat laws. And how, how could you not be ignorant of that? It's a bunch of arbitrary opinion.
0: And at a certain point, some of them become so old and outdated, they're called letter laws. If you look it up, uh, there's like a mountain of insane, like, you know, there's some cities or towns or counties Mm -hmm. where- you know, it's, it's illegal to put a penny in your ear or something like, there's <laughs> <endless laws. laughs> that, No one's going to remember that or know that. And so at a certain point, if the, if the prosecutor enforces it, it's because he has like an infinite number of laws he can pick and choose from to go after whoever he wants. And that's called right. enforcement. And that means the prosecutor is a God and we're basically at his, as, at his mercy. Um, which is one reason I, I think that there should be in, you know, say, in, the, in America, in the, in the state and the U.S. constitutions, you know, I think there should be, um, well, I think legislation should be radically limited or prescribed. But one way to do that would be to say any legislation expires automatically after X years. Unless yeah. re- so like you have, it's called sunset sunset laws, because you have all these laws that are like, they make no sense. And then they just grow and they grow and they're never repealed because there's never a political impetus to repeal them. So every law should have a time limit, I believe, built in. Every Mm. every artificial law that is, every statute should Mm -hmm. have a time automatically built in where they expire. And if there's not enough political uh, will to revive the law or to keep it going, then it just expires, right? Like, uh, and they do that on occasion with some laws. Usually, with tax cuts, like they'll say, mm-hmm. oh, like George Bush and Trump were like, oh, we're going to lower your taxes from 45% to I don't know, 39% for the next eight years or 10 years. But then they go back to their original level. So, mm-hmm. like, all sunset laws are usually like they sunset good laws. Right, right. <laughs> sunset the bad laws.
1: Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This three day event will be held May 18th through 20th in Miami Beach. Uh, This is going to be the biggest event of the year, as it always is. And the past two years in Miami have simply been amazing. Uh, Day one's industry day, days two and three are going to be open to general admission. And I'd say this is a great place to go and network with Bitcoiners or even look for a job. Uh, Just a really all around great experience. There's a fantastic speaker lineup including Michael Saylor, Zoltan Pozar, Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, many others. And last year, we did a 10 million sats giveaway for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference and use code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin, while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. So I assume that like the English common law tradition that was more of the discovered law, at least here in the West process, the legal discovery process. How did we diverge so much from common law to this abundance of fiat decreed law we have today and is there a way to go back
0: i think uh, my impression is what happened was this so you had the roman law which was before the common law and it was largely decentralized and organic as well it was a Mm -hmm. beautiful system it was sort of lost after the collapse of the roman empire it was rediscovered later but it had some influence so the roman law and then the common law was also organic and decentralized largely both generated large bodies of private law, which were, which are, which are largely commendable and improvements over what had gone before, and largely compatible with what we would say is libertarian principles. The private mm. law, the common law, and the common law. Um, you always had the ability of the of the state, like the Roman Empire, or the English kings and Parliament. To enact statutes and they would derogate from the private law that the courts had developed but they were always seen as like exceptions or intrusions like do you have the mm-hmm. private with a footnote like okay mm-hmm. parliament has reigned in this they've changed this okay fine is it they're like on occasion adjusting it or coming mm-hmm. in but i th- i think with the rise of democracy the fall of the monarchies after world war one the rise of democracy and the Industrial and the uh, managerial state uh, in in the 1900s, um, you started having this explosion of legislation, special interest legislation by the by the parliament in the common law countries, by the legislatures in um, say America and in the in the civil law countries, and over time, the special interest statutes became have become the main source of 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 law. There's still a core of private law that's still anchored in the common law, but it's increasingly overshadowed and and outruled by statute law. Uh-huh. The only solution to that is to get rid of democracy. Huh. So once you have a large country <laughs> with, with a large population and large special interest groups and, de- and democracy, then democratic lawmaking will eventually... Um, submerge the private law that we mm-hmm. used to have, and it's a sad process and that's happening gradually over time in in the in, in in the common law countries the commonwealth in america you know canada australia new zealand south africa india okay mm-hmm. scotland ireland and also in the civil law in the continent in all the european countries and some other countries influenced by them so that the problem i think is ultimately democracy I think it's ultimately democracy since, since world war
1: one which gets us into Hoppe's other excellent book democracy the god that failed you could read the introduction in chapter one to that for that for laying out a really strong argument against democracy how did we this is interesting too I, very few people realize this that the us was actually founded as a constitutional republic but now we have this like Pacrosanct treatment of democracy, right? You hear all the talking heads on the news reciting it. This is a danger to our democracy. You know, how did that shift happen? How did we go from constitutional republic to we worship democracy as if it were the greatest mode of governance ever created?
0: Well, and I think it's also how did we go from the United States as a plural to a singular? I mean, Mm. it's all around the the Civil War. United States was a plural. The United States are,
1: right? Ah, oh, interesting. Okay,
0: it is because it's. It. So we've we we stopped being viewed as. I won't say fifty. There weren't fifty states in the Civil War. I don't. Know, Thirty-five. How many of those? Thirty-five. Thirty-five states, which were, union, They had a. They had a. They basically had a, a treaty with each other under international law called the Constitution. Hmm or compact you can call it but it was it was an agreement to Well, it was it, i think it was a it was it was a mistake what what the us did the us Correct. 13 the 13 states uh colonies then states uh came together and formed actually it wasn't 13 it was if you recall the constitution um so the 13 colonies now are declaring themselves states and they were sovereign states at that point because they won the uh the war for independence from from England in 1985. So they operated under the Articles of Confederation so they they were confederation. They they kind of have a treaty with each other and they call themselves the United States of America, but it wasn't clear whether that was the state under international law, like the USA was a country, although it handled negotiations because they had had appointed it with that power. They kind of gave it that agency delegation. Um, But when they formed the Constitution, um, I think I think it, they said that the Constitution will become effective when seven or nine of the original, maybe it's eleven, maybe so I think it said nine of the thirteen ratify it. Uh-huh. Which means that when the ninth state ratified, and if I recall, Delaware is the first, and there were I forgot which was the last, maybe Rhode Island or whatever. Uh-huh. But the point. On a certain day in 1789, the, the ninth state ratified the Constitution, which meant that the United States of America came into being on that at that point in time with, say, 11 states or nine or whatever it was, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever the number was for it to come into effect, which meant that the two or three or four states that had not yet ratified were not part of the Union. Mm-hmm. And they would not have been part of the Union if they had not ratified, which dispels this this kind of uh Straussian notion the sandifer tim sandifer this libertarian centralist idea that the that the US was not the the separate states but it was the mass of the people voting as one because by that idea then even the the two or three states that didn't ratify on the on the final day of uh, uh, that the the, country, uh, the US became a, a country they were part of it too because of the majority rule democracy. right 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 Almost in, that, that that no one would have agreed to that back in seventeen. Everyone would have said no. That's that's crazy. If Massachusetts right. uh, and Rhode Island don't want to be part of the country. They don't have to be. Right? It would have been separate countries. Mm-hmm. Um. But the point is that you know the the U.S. needs to be viewed the way it used to be viewed. But that's almost impossible now because of the mm-hmm. propaganda that's been wrought by the brainwashing and the propaganda because of the Civil War. I mean, how many times have you heard people say, if you say, well, we should have secession, and you're, you're, you're not even saying it's a legal right, which I think it is in the Constitution, but you're just saying as a, it's a good idea that people have the right to secede because mm-hmm. decentralization is good, localization is good, small is mm-hmm. good, whatever. And people, the retort will be, well, the Civil War settled that. So they resort to this might makes right mentality, which is, well, whoever the victor is by force can write the rules that whatever they say is right
1: mm-hmm.
0: well, it's not true I mean uh the Civil War didn't settle the issue the, cost, the 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 Supreme Court settled the issue in Texas v white in the 18 late 1800s with 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 the with with the case about whether Texas had actually seceded or not and they had this bizarre just assertion that Texas never left the Union so their debts are still, I forget it was a dead issue, but the mm. point is, they had to decide whether Texas had ever seceded. They said no, Texas never seceded because they they didn't have the right to because it's a perpetual union. That's it. Like that's sort oh. reasoning. It's just a, just a naked bare assertion. But that's not that's just like the victor stating what the you know it's like. What right. do I say? The victor writes the history books.
1: Right. Um, These not
0: justified. The Constitution still has has a meaning and the, the constitution nowhere authorizes the federal government to use force to prevent a state from leaving. I mean, in my view, the constitution doesn't bind the states at all. At most, when the state, when the constitution says the states can't uh, have a retroactive, uh, like they can't uh, violate the obligation of contracts, mm-hmm. like there's a prohibition of what the states can do but the Constitution doesn't give the federal government the power to do anything about it. So my view is that when, in the few cases where the Constitution purports to limit what the states can do, all that means is it's a condition of membership in the club. Mm -hmm. And it's like saying like, okay, if Louisiana uh, has a law that violates this this provision of the Constitution, then the other states can get together and kick them out of the club. You know, if like if you join a country club and you refuse to uh, to to dress according to their dress code and their Mm -hmm. their, they can they can they can eject you as a member. They can kick you out. Yeah, can go to war against you. Like, make they can't say you're going to wear this collared shirt and we're going to force your ass into our dining room and we're going to (laughs) make you. No, they just say you're violating the rules of the club. You're you're hereby ejected. Bye Bye. Yeah, and that's what I think the remedy would be—the only remedy. The Constitution. So I don't think the Constitution ever meant to, or can be construed properly, to give the the federal government the power to do anything in state territory that the states disagree with. If there's a if there's a butting of the heads and a the disagreement, then the only option for the federal government is to go to the states and say, "We need to kick out this member; they're not following the rules." And then you know Tennessee gets kicked out, or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's it. And uh, by the way, I would love that happen to Texas. Kick kick us out. Yeah. Let's violate some uh, constitutional obligations so they pick us out.
1: Yeah, I think getting out of the United States now disuniting from the other states seems to be increasingly attractive um, given all of the insanity going on inside the United States. That's very interesting going from the, the, the plural United States to the singular. I never thought of it that way. Um, I, it seems like again, I'm reflecting on Will Durant's writing here. I forget which. I forget which book this is coming from. There's one book he wrote, him and his wife wrote, that's 100 pages, and it's like the history of the world, basically, and condensed into 100 pages. And there's one passage in there where he describes this movement to towards centralization and back toward decentralization as like the heartbeat of human history. Like we have this, I think you called it the systole and the diastole of human history. And so it sounds kind of like what you're describing here is that we had this decentralized constitutional republic that was a response to the tyranny uh, that was being experienced under British rule, right? They were rebelling against this centralized power. And then when the founding fathers said, well, how are we going to construct this thing so we don't become that, they built it as a constitutional republic. But then over time through division and infighting, which now I'm reflecting on a book by Dominic Frisby. He actually says the civil war was a war over the tax base that most of the tax productive... I think the South maybe had one third of the population but was paying two thirds of the tax base, something like that, which is much more productive land in the South. And so, you know, Lincoln effectively wanted to keep that revenue when the south wanted to secede peacefully and so is it is it i guess what i'm working towards here is is it conflict that's driving centralization like is said, like, because that's when you need everyone to kind of pull together right i guess maybe that's why the u.s constitution was there as if someone waged war on any one state in the u.s that all the states would band together to fight off the foreign invader is it that, is it conflict that drives us back towards centralization and maybe revolution that drives us towards decentralization?
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I, I mean, I think that the, you know, 13 colonies were close enough in culture and, you know, they're mostly English and whatever, so that they, 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 and they had just fought a war against, um, they, they had to band together to, to, to defend themselves, um, to, to free themselves from, from, from the UK, from Great Britain, um. I, I, that was probably part of it. And uh, but I think they were they were wary of the danger of centralization. So they wanted to give this they wanted to have a representation. they were a new country. They were they were not rich yet. They were not powerful mm-hmm. yet. I mean, they barely won this war against a great superpower at the time, right? So I think that they I think that they thought, you know we need to band together and and have a common front. Let's call ourselves the United States of America. so we'll have a Congress and we can do certain things we can they can negotiate for us on the foreign stage we can have a common defense, mm-hmm. just the states will do everything else, right? So it was an interesting experiment. As for why we became a democracy, I mean, I used to say that too, when I was a young college punk, I would say, oh, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, we're a republic in the sense we're not an unlimited democracy, like in Athens or something, partly because the country was too big and certainly became too big to be just like a plebiscite, you know? Mm-hmm. But, everything. So mm-hmm. um, it's divided into different layers, different levels. You know, the country, the states, the counties, the cities, the municipalities. Um, uh, but you know, from the beginning in the Constitution, the the entire design it was a it was a democracy in the sense that you know there was popular election of the president and of senator uh, of congressmen. Right. So I mean. It was a democracy, but it was a limited democracy. It was limited mm. by various rules, like you know ter- certain term limits for congressmen, um, mm. certain qualifications for the president. Uh, you know the Electoral College as a barrier between the senators who were originally appointed by the states and the governors or the legislatures of the states. So it was sort of a it, it was democracy, but tempered by institutional barriers to keep it from being a pure pure democracy mm. but i think over time i guess after world war 1 especially you know whether the us was an ascendant um uh, you know uh, we could distinguish ourselves from other countries in the world by democracy right because we had it more than anyone else so i think that democracy over time came came to be sort of um a stand-in for what the original limited democracy or Republican system was mm. that we tried to create. But mm. I think the Democratic Party, uh, as predicted by Hoppe in his democracy book, eventually got out of hand and were more of a pure, pure democracy now. I mean, you have these Republican congressmen now who, okay, they did have a victory with the abortion issue by having the Supreme Court overturn the Roe versus Wade decision, In the Dobbs case, which I think was legally a good decision, but the right answer would be what they originally said, return it back to the states. But now you have some Republicans wanting to uh, outlaw abortion after a certain time nationally with, with federal legislation. But that would be totally unconstitutional because the Constitution doesn't give Congress the power to outlaw abortion. It also gives Congress the power to protect abortion rights in the states. I think the federal government has no authorized power whatsoever to say anything about what states do about abortion. They can't protect abortion. They can't re- restrict abortion. But mm. everyone is thinking like, well, I'm in Congress. I can vote to make whatever law I want because they mm. that's how they think of law. Law is whatever the, the Congress says. That's how people think nowadays. Right. Not even what the Congress says, that's what law is, and that's because we've become totally, uh, uh you know, we've accepted this idea of of law as legislation, and it, and if you accept this unitary state idea, the federal government is the main government, it's the real government. The states are nothing but puny, mm-hmm. right, uh, dependencies. So whatever the Congress says is the law.
1: Right. Uh, okay, one last question. I'll let you get out of here. To what extent do you think the implementation of the Federal Reserve, which was the successful implementation of a central bank in the U.S., contributed towards this flipping right, of states kind of having the most power and the federal government being uh, subservient to states to now we, we view it as the opposite. We have central federal government as kind of the powerful central power, and then the states are just these dependents on the central government? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I suppose you have a point
0: there because, I mean, this was baked into the Constitution from the beginning right? by saying the states, only the federal government can coin money. Because under the Articles of Confederation, before the Constitution, the states could coin their own money. Uh-huh. Uh, so it basically, uh, the Constitution said the one thing states cannot do is coin money all they can do is make gold or silver legal tender that's all they can do Uh and the federal government had the power to coin money so that's what gave rise to all this and then you know there was controversy whether the government can have a bank but eventually they got that power because who's going to interpret the power of the federal government but the the federal government's courts the supreme court so the supreme court has an incentive because they're part of the government (laughs) so they're Mm -hmm. going to say yeah we have that power and that's what happened over time Uh um you think about the US's power on the international stage and in war, it's partly partly because of our industrial might and our free markets caused mm-hmm. by the Constitution. That's one good thing about the Constitution was the the Commerce Clause effectively established a free market between the 50, ultimately the 50 states, which mm-hmm. is one reason why our success, I believe, um, which is why I don't think the Commerce Clause is an authorization for the Congress to pass laws and regulate, which is what they say it is, it was just the way to get a free market. But, um, um, I'm sorry, I forgot. Where's it going it?
1: Uh, I was asking about well, how the central bank contributed oh,
0: right. to... So, yeah, yeah, so so, 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 so because the, the federal government and the government, the states, but the federal government can only tax so much because people will revolt at a certain point. Uh-huh. And so... If you could, if you have to tax people and you have sound money like you have a gold-backed money, then you have to tax people to fund your operations. That's it. Which means it's hard to do a war because they're expensive.
1: Uh-huh.
0: when you have fractional reserve banking and the central bank and fiat money, then all of a sudden the government can do deficit financing and they can just spend money when they don't have it yet. Uh-huh. So that's when war becomes bigger and the the U.S. military gets bigger and we start controlling the rest of the world and then the dollar after world war ii became the, the reserve currency of the world so we we've been exploiting that benefit for 70 years and ex- exporting mm-hmm. our influence to of the world that may be about to end nobody knows some people think it might be whatever um and i i i suppose that in tandem with the the federal government using their ability to have this world reserve currency fiat currency they could they could they could sp- print more at any time and effectively fund deficit finance, their wars and their spending projects and their international intervention, that they can use that also to dominate the states. And they did that with what, what's – so although there are technically limitations on what the federal government can do, once you say they can tax whatever they want, then mm. the spending power becomes discretionary. So the federal government, whatever money they have, whether they print it or they tax it, uh. they spend that money on whatever they want. And of course what they do is they say okay Louisiana Texas Mississippi whatever every state we're going to build a big highway in your con- in your state but only if you lower the drinking age to 18 from 21 you know so they t- huh. they attach strings to doling out so they take money from the citizens of the states and then they give it back to the states with strings attached so that's how they control education huh. police departments the Anti-discrimination laws, uh, you know uh, the uh, 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 the, just, uh, the the drinking age, mm-hmm. all kinds of things. Yeah, you're not going to get highway funds unless until you lower your drinking law from 21 to 18. That's it. We're not forcing you to do it. We're just right. withholding these funds that we took from your citizens. Right. So it gives them an immense power over the states, and you know they did that with Obamacare. You know, for I don't know for, for eight or nine years some of the conservative states held out on agreeing to this I don't know I, I don't understand this Medicare expansion or whatever yeah. but they're they're basically turning down billions of dollars from the federal government and they're starting to all give in now as they as they will
1: right right
0: from the federal government to yeah so I think without that power they wouldn't be able
1: to, do that. What they that? Have the, money to the to bribe the states with or to extort them with. Does wokeism fall under this as well, where like central government's able to push these wokeist policies on states by by using dollars as uh, a, a carrot, uh, effectively? Like if you want,
0: I think we're in the middle of it right now. I think we'll see. Who knows? Maybe may right. we'll start, especially in education, right? Because the education department funds all these private, I mean, all these state based education systems, and so I guess they can start attaching dei or lgbtq plus uh right missions on on the federal aid for education i'm not sure
1: that's a really interesting angle on how the monopolization of money can be used to fund psyops in a way right like you're just stealing purchasing power from people and then if you want these dollars back states well then you got to jump through these hoops and then whoever Whoever the hoop is can basically impose their their ideology or their values or whatever it may be uh, into state policy. That's crazy to think about. Um, perhaps then a constitutional republic standardized on Bitcoin or any hard money for that matter would resist this tendency to centralize over time. Just because it, it would would resist, it would resist the central bank basically
0: yeah there there, i mean there would be no central bank
1: yeah right right okay seven wonderful conversation as usual um (laughs) gave me a lot to think about um let's do it again soon where can people find you on the internet uh i'm at at ns kinsella on twitter and facebook thank you so much for doing this again
0: thanks robert